it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stamper. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern, here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and tiller rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now, please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now, please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 27 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139335. Today is Thursday, March 31st, 2016. We appreciate y'all being here tonight. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. Our topic tonight is part one of a two-part series, Foreclosures, Evidence and Procedure, or How to Leave Banana Peels on the Floor for the Banksters. People going through complex legal issues, especially lawsuits from banks or consumer debt or foreclosures, really find themselves at a disadvantage even with an attorney. One of the roadblocks is the lack of understanding of legal procedure and how to take full advantage of the tools available to bring important evidence into the record of the case. An often missed step is forgetting to bring expert testimony into the case to challenge the affidavits floated by the bank's lawyers. Why just leave the judge with a choice of a he said, she said, when these additional statements might help tip the scale in your favor? Tonight we have a special guest who over the past 30 years has been an attorney, legal advisor, consumer advocate, and expert witness. Dr. Robert K. Locke, Jr. will be discussing evidence and procedure in foreclosure cases, including the need for sworn affidavits from independent third-party expert witnesses to counter the evidence presented by the banks. But before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. 
The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everyone. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize that you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinincourt.com. For those of you who don't already know, here's a little bit about our guest. A native of Chicago, Dr. Robert Luck, attended St. Ignatius College Prep, received his Bachelor's in Arts in English Literature from the University of San Francisco, and is Juris Doctor from John Marshall Law School in Chicago. Additional postgraduate studies include a nearly completed Ph.D. in Communications at Northwestern University. Before retiring from active practice, Dr. Bob worked as an attorney for over 26 years, beginning as an assistant state's attorney under Richard M. Daly in Chicago, where for eight years he prosecuted both civil and criminal cases in the circuit and appellate courts. He then served as legal and policy advisor to the Illinois Commerce Commission for three years. He was a member of the Chicago Bar Association Collections Committee and past chairman of the Chicago Bar Association Public Utility Committee. He also served as a member on Mayor Richard M. Daley's Council of Technology Advisors. From there, he went off into the private sector and worked as a consultant, expert, witness, and attorney on major commercial litigation. Utilizing his advanced knowledge of mortgage securitization and legal strategies, he has assisted and defended countless numbers of residential and commercial borrowers against foreclosures and brought claims against foreclosing entities for violation of state and federal consumer protection laws. During this time, he has also reached out to help and educate thousands of consumers about collection abuses and consumer law and help to discharge millions of dollars in collection debt. The amount of information and stories that he'd like to share with us is rather large, so we've decided to present this in a two-part series, today being part one, with part two on April 21st. So, without further ado, let us all please welcome Dr. Bob. Hello, Dr. Bob. How are you doing tonight? Great, Goose. How are you? Uh, We're still flying. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Thanks for taking the time to be with us this evening uh, to try to help educate our folks. We see you have quite a colorful and diverse career. To get started, would you like to add anything that we haven't mentioned already about uh, your background and how you went from prosecutor to technology advisor to consumer defense specialist? You know what? The, the common thread through all of those things is is the consumers, other than you know the narcotics, which is a different kind of a consumer. Um, it, it, I've always, uh, my throughout my career, I've always been focused on on trying to help people that were at a disadvantage in the system. So in the beginning, you know, fighting against uh, public utilities and behalf of consumers on rate increases, the utility bills and things like that. Um, 
you know, going through then to uh, fighting against regional bell operating companies and trying to force open the, the last mile of the, the old, if you guys remember the old landlines that go into your house that most people are getting rid of now. Um, you know, giving the consumers a chance to be able to go in and, and get some advantages from breaking up the monopolies and, and opening up that network to competition. And and then, you know, going through and uh, developing, you know, a network of 250 attorneys around the country and trying to find a resource both for the attorneys to connect with uh, with consumers in need of help and consumers uh, giving them a, a uh, you know, a support network, if you will, to gain an understanding, gain some knowledge of the world that they were uh, battling against. And, um, and, and hopefully, you know, if the situations came together correctly, um, putting them together with attorneys who are knowledgeable in the area to be able to give them points of leverage and, and, and hopefully find in the good cases, um, instances of, of, of violations of consumer protection. I have to say, I'm kind of amused by the idea of using evidence and procedure to leave banana peels on the floor for the bank lawyers to slip up. That would be like a 180-degree shift for how most folks feel in court today. Uh, would you care to share some examples of how that might happen? Sure. You know, the, the conversation that you, you and I had in the past dealt with procedure, and procedure is always, to me, that first leg of the stool that we need to deal with. And procedure kills, and it especially kills consumers and homeowners, um, and even more so those that don't have attorneys to represent them in those cases or choose not to hire attorneys to represent them in those cases and, and give them insulation. And so, you know, when I, when I reflect back on things that I've done and uh, advice that I give people now in counsel, I, I look at things like from the first day that you step into a courtroom, don't, you've got to get rid of that deer in the headlights look right away. And you've got to realize that, particularly in a foreclosure situation, this is your home. And if you're, if you're dealing with a mortgage, particularly in the last 20 years, all right, you're getting screwed in ways that you just have no idea at this point. And, and while your conditioned initial impulse is to look for somebody else to blame besides the bank. In in reality, the bank has screwed you on five different levels that you don't even see besides that go way beyond the things that you've read in the paper. And so, you know, people's impulses are to go in and file an answer. Now, you want to file a verified answer, obviously, because if if you file a verified answer after they file an unverified complaint, then everything that gets filed after your answer has to be verified. In other words, sworn to by somebody who's going to put their name and reputation and career on them. And, um, and understand that there are both explicit and implicit presumptions that, for example, here in Illinois, the Illinois Mortgage Foreclosure Law places into the record. And that you need to be very, very careful. People get very paranoid about not wanting to lie in their answers and what they end up doing, I see too many times, is they end up lying, thinking that they're telling the truth. They end up agreeing and admitting that there's a default when, in fact, 
just because they stopped paying their mortgage because financial circumstances went against them. In fact, a servicer or an insurance policy or another third party was continuing to pay the investor or whoever else was holding the uh, the paperwork on that loan. And so when you just volunteer that, yeah, I'm in default, and so this foreclosure is correct, well, you know what? You're operating without information, and you're doing it without – you're providing that answer without necessarily um, uh, you know, trying to lie, but you're lying because in reality – more often than not, in today's secure, securitized mortgage market, the the loan is still being paid by somebody. And if 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 whoever it is that is owed a payment is being paid, the person that's paying them may have a claim against you for unjust enrichment, but they certainly don't have a right to come after you and take your home. That's very interesting. You have uh, a lot of different possible causes of action that... Uh theoretically aggrieved parties could take, but it seems foreclosure is not one of them, at least with the the parties that show up um, in foreclosure cases these days. Would you agree? Very much so. And, and, you know, there are still some of those, you know, the small banks that are out there, depending upon where you are, but particularly in an urban environment, um, those loans, you know, in the beginning, the funds may be table-funded, from a warehouse line of credit that the quote-unquote lender has access to, and those warehouse lines of credit that they're using, those things by themselves, using those and then turning around and saying that, you know, these were my funds that I loaned you in order to buy that house, that is under Regulation Z per se a violation of the Truth in Lending Act. And you've got, you've got all these, you've got servicers and subservicers and you've got investors who, who the homeowner, you know, may have used their money, um, but they never had a contractual relationship with those investors. They never had a meeting of the mind. And if they were able to get connected with that investor now that they're in default and in foreclosure, they may be able to come to a meeting of the minds and resolve that. And the challenge is the challenge is getting to know the foreclosure environment at at a deeper level than most people, um, you know, normally would, and taking advantage of flaws in the bank and the foreclosure mill's paperwork and their following of procedures and position yourself with the judge where the judge has to take you seriously and has to ask. Well, in addition to putting your foot in your mouth and testifying to things that you don't know, like you just mentioned, what are some of the other more frequent procedural mistakes that are committed by homeowners? Well, generally they don't they don't challenge or strike the affidavits that are used to support um, foreclosure complaints. They don't challenge the exhibits. They don't challenge the um, you know everything that is that is placed inside those those um, mortgage foreclosure complaints because the overwhelming uh, propensity of homeowners is they're getting beaten up they're they're you know fighting for their life financially and they feel like you're speaking Greek to them when they get this 25 page 
you know, or 50-page or 100-page stack of papers with the summons on top that's in English and Spanish and, you know, all the things that explain how the court process works. And like I said, they get, they get you know, they get that deer in the headlights look. And so they end up admitting things that they shouldn't. They end up not challenging things that they should. And they end up just being led along like sheep and trusting that the system is going to work and work rationally and reasonably and that other people are going to protect their interests. And in reality, and I always said this when I was practicing, the to me, um, the most valuable client to me was an educated client, a client that knew what was going on in their own case and knew, you know, to a certain level, um, what was going on in the world at large regarding these issues. Because then you could sit down and have a serious conversation and you could you could take someone with that knowledge and you could put together affidavits for different purposes throughout the course of the litigation, whether it's challenging whether you would do discovery or challenging, you know, a motion to strike the or dismiss the complaint or strike the affidavit, et cetera, before you ever talk about going in and getting an expert witness um, to come in and testify and file an affidavit on your behalf. So don't you also? But I was going to say, in addition, don't you also agree that uh, it's absolutely essential if you're pro se, pro per, whatever you call it, or uh, with an attorney, that you have a court reporter in the room. And that is that's the that's the third leg of the stool, and uh, the the case that you and I were discussing. Uh, yesterday, here that I, I think provides a good snapshot of, of, of Illinois mortgage foreclosure practice with pro se. Highlights the big, the big um, failures that pro se homeowners make when they walk into a foreclosure courtroom and they admit things that they didn't that that, that and, and essentially lie in their answer. They didn't challenge the affidavit. They didn't move to strike the complaint and challenge every aspect of, of the claims that the bank was making and make them prove their case. And then at the end of the day, they didn't provide a record to the appellate court because the, the case law is very, very clear. If you're going to bring an appeal, then you've got to provide the record to support your appeal. And if all you have is an order that shows that an oral argument took place, but you don't have the actual transcript of that oral argument that the court can look at, then the court all of a sudden is looking at whatever the judge or somebody else drafted in an order. And it puts you at a significant disadvantage. It also, from a practical perspective, um, I, I have seen this really hundreds and hundreds of times since they stopped having uh, um court reporters in courtrooms on a regular basis. When a court reporter shows up into the courtroom, because it happens so rarely now, everybody in the courtroom, in terms of the clerks, the judge, the law clerks, and and the other attorneys in the room, they're all trying to figure out what case that court reporter is there for. And it changes the entire environment. It will change what's going to come out of that judge's mouth, it will keep that judge honest and not exert, you know, he, he, he's not going to go down on the record as, as showing any kind of bias 
for either of the parties, where he's got incredible pressure on him or her or to to move cases along through the system. Because you look at some place like Cook County, you know, you get forty or fifty thousand foreclosure cases filed a year, and there's twenty judges to deal with them. That's a lot of cases to have on your docket, and they've got cases from 2010 on their docket. So, you know, they need, just from a procedural perspective, logistical perspective, you know, they need to, to get things moving through the system. So um, I, I think that court reporter is a critical component that most people just completely leave off the table. And when you look at the value that a court reporter will give you in terms of giving you a, an absolutely truthful verbatim record of everything that was said in the hearing regarding your home, um, it, it's worth the investment. And honestly, it does not cost that much. You can find really good court reporters that are really honest and that do a fantastic job. And, you know, it won't cost you an arm and leg. Have you ever seen the presence of a court reporter immediately cause the plaintiff's attorney to move for a rescheduling? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 like I said, it changes the entire environment in the courtroom. And where before, understand, for foreclosure mills, these are, you know, huge operations that are really, you know, factory-like. In, in in the production line uh, presentation of, of of you know cases on behalf of their clients, and they know because of the volume of cases that there are crops in a huge number of their files, and so they want to avoid having a a you know, a written record of that those instances. And understand that when these people walk into the courtroom, you know, what they've got is a huge stack of files and whatever the document is that's up for the hearing that day. And then they've got a printout from their computer at work that, and maybe some scribble notes that they put on the side that tells them basically a, a, a thumbnail of what's going on in any particular case. And this is what you say. So these people aren't walking into court and with with a in-depth knowledge of your case. Your case is one of, you know, a thousand that they might have on their plate. And maybe today they're in this courtroom, but usually they're in another courtroom, or they brought them in from the suburbs. And so it, it, can, it can have a really, really, you know, positive effect in terms of keeping everybody honest. Um. I was wondering if you could uh, just describe for our audience who the players really are in any particular foreclosure or consumer debt case, because the uh, deer-in-the-headlights customer, consumer, is going to walk in there and think that everybody belongs there, and they all have a proper position and proper claim. But there's other people behind the scenes that are not mentioned sometimes in the docket and sometimes not mentioned in the complaint that might have an interest in what's going on. Can you talk about the... Uh, the multiple layers of uh, attack that are actually happening that the homeowner doesn't see? Well, the homeowner always looks at the top of the, at the caption, uh, at the top of the first sheet that they get, and they see it, for example, U.S. Bank versus um, John Homeowner and Jane Homeowner. 
And so they just assume, well, U.S. Bank was who I got the loan through when we got the mortgage, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so it's them. And in reality, um, particularly in this world of securitization where normal lending processes were changed significantly to streamline the and, – and, and, and make more efficient and, 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 and faster the movement of money, um, you end up with a situation where they brought in now these servicers. So traditionally, you know, in the George Bailey type situation – um, you've got a you've got a, a small town bank or savings and loan that makes a mortgage to somebody and a note is executed and the note goes into the safe and as long as the payments are made then everything goes along and works smoothly. In in today's situation, that note that you signed was sold before the ink dry and it's gone and. It may be by the time you reach foreclosure, depending upon how many years that you've been uh, in the house, it may be sold two, three, five, ten times. And so you've got these organizations like Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems and, and these servicers that are out there, and then you've got trustees and you've got you know, depositors to the trust, and you've got subservicers. You've got Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You've got all these different entities that have their fingers in the pie, trying to take, you know, a little bit, a little bit out for themselves, and trying to do it in a situation where they take a little bit of a lot of mortgages while avoiding any kind of uh, large-scale liability in case something goes wrong. You know, some of your past research that I was reading about um, showed that uh, many banks and other institutions, servicers, and the like are not even licensed to do business in every state. So how are they able to do what they do and bring you into court when they may or may not even have standing to be there by virtue of the Secretary of State's office? Well, that's, you know, that's one of my pet peeves. And it stems from somebody putting a bug in my ear you know, maybe 15 years ago, um, talking about Discover Bank and how was Discover Bank operating anywhere outside of Delaware. And I thought, well, they're Discover Bank. They advertise on TV, and, you know, they wouldn't be doing that if they, if they you know, weren't properly licensed. I mean, they're huge. And then I I dug a little bit deeper, and and then I looked out at the at – the, uh, here in Illinois, it's the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation – I looked in their database, and they're not listed in there with all the rest of the financial institutions. And so I sent a letter to the, um, I'll call them the IDFPR, because it's, it's too big of a mouthful to say, Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation too many times. Um, and I sent them a letter, and I said, can you please explain to me how Discover Bank is not only, you know, lending people credit, and lending people money in Illinois, but how are they bringing lawsuits? Because if you're not if you're not an Illinois corporation or a foreign corporation that's registered to do business with the Secretary of State, and as a financial institution, if you're not registered with the IDFPR, then you don't you don't have a right 
to use the court system because you haven't paid your freight. And I said, can you please explain to me how they're, how they're operating with this? And the IDFPR came back to me a few weeks later, and they said, you know what? Uh, they're regulated by the FDIC, so you really need to go and talk to them. So I sent a letter to the FDIC asking the same question and attached a letter from the IDFPR. And obviously, they didn't even look at it because my re- response from them was, you need to talk to the IDFPR about what they're doing in Illinois. And so, you know, you go a couple of rounds on that and you realize that they're just out there and they're, they got so big so fast, they just basically dared the regulators to put them out of business. And, you know, is, there, is, it, is it deeper than that? Um, is there corruption involved? Who knows? None that I've ever been able to see. All I know is that they're not playing by the rules. And they're not playing by the rules that everybody else has to play by and for reasons that I, to this day, haven't been able to find out. And then when you've got these servicers and subservices and all these other parties that are in these foreclosure cases or debt collectors that are in these uh, consumer collection cases that aren't licensed and aren't registered and that are out there and walking into courtrooms all over the state and all over the country and presenting themselves as being a legitimate entity with a legitimate right and standing to bring a lawsuit against somebody. What they're doing is they're just basically taking advantage of the fact that the court systems are so overburdened right now with consumer collection cases and foreclosure cases that they hope to just fly under the radar for as long as they can. And if they get caught, they hope that they will have made, you know, millions and millions of dollars before that. Um, well, and either that, either that, or we're also living simultaneously in a mysterious, unknown, undefined additional jurisdiction that is yet to be stated. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Now, now, you're, <laughs> now you're going to a whole different level, and and that may be there as well. Uh, and and I've been doing a whole lot of research about that lately. But finding a way, if if we presume that that in fact, exist. The challenge right now is how do you take control in that jurisdiction and how do you navigate back and forth between what is real and what is fictional and, um, and, and do it in a case-specific instance like a foreclosure case or a collection case. Well, how could you force it? How could you force it into the jurisdiction that you presume that it is, as opposed to some ethereal, uh, magical jurisdiction? Um, that's that's the point of a huge part of my research right now, and how do you get remedy for having been brought unjustly into the wrong jurisdiction venue? Um, and, and the honest answer to that is there are, uh, there are millions of really, really good minds that are doing in-depth research on these issues, but we're still in the experimental phase from everything that I've seen. And people think that they're doing the right thing. The paths seem to be converging from a very, very diverse um, set of minds that I think we're getting very close. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're still at a point where I don't think that we've, we've reached a definitive answer to that question. 
Well, on another area, we talked about the psychology of court and the psychology of attorneys um, when we were having our pre-show interview. And a lot of folks feel like they're being sized up in the courtroom in advance by the opposing counsel or the judge. Um, is there Have they been pre-evaluated as to the potential threat that they might pose to the plaintiff? And how aggressively are they going to be attacked depending on whether or not they have that deer-in-the-headlights look or they show up prepared with a reporter? Um, I think the easy way to look at that, you know, pre-evaluation isn't going to happen unless you've got a history, and and most people don't. And so the the sense of, of overwhelm by the collector mill law firms and the foreclosure mill law firms and the courts themselves is so great that I don't think that they really have the resources to be able to look at each individual case. They just kind of take it as it comes up there. But they've seen so many thousands of these cases in very short periods of time. They know what all the moving parts are. And so they're going to know, they're not going to know from the first word out of your mouth whether you know what you're talking about and whether you're going to be able to exert leverage um, and, and hit pressure points and keep the judge in line. So it's more typecasting. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And, okay. And, and, you know. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a thing where if you walk in there and you've got, you've got everything organized and you're, you're succinct but complete in the thoughts that you express and in the challenges that you make and you take the time and make the investments, get a court reporter. And if you can afford to and can find a qualified attorney to to help in your defense, they're going to put you in a whole different level. And, 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 and it really is levels. You know, you get the people that don't show up at all and they go in the default pile. And then you get the people that show up pro se that don't have a clue and they're in the, they're in the next to, you know, going to, going to summary judgment quickly pile. And then you get the people that show up pro se who understand something of procedure and oh, wait, wait, wait. let's not forget the public defender ones. Or the well, ones well, the ones who get the free lawyer from the uh lobby. Well, yeah. Yeah, well. You know, I mean, getting a public getting getting those getting those legal aid attorneys and and and, and those legal aid attorneys are, you know, I mean, those are some good souls. You know, they they are they're they're, they're fighting a good battle. Um, they're so overwhelmed that to expect them to really take the time, have the time to get to know the intricacies of your case without you knowing it and guiding them is very small. There's obviously going to be exceptions. I mean, I've come across some fantastic uh, legal aid attorneys that, that, are, that are able to do that. But for the most part, what you're going to see is that they're they're there and they basically act like shepherds and they're not going to make huge arguments regarding the issues that we typically talk about and we typically see and, and they're not going to make huge challenges what they're doing is they're saying okay the only mortgage foreclosure law is designed like any other law in this area to make the burden low for the banks 
but it was designed to give the homeowner an extended period of time. So we're not dealing with a rocket docket situation once they, they've got down in Florida where you turn around and have a cup of coffee and your house is sold at a, at a share sale. You know, if you if you put up a minimum fight um, and know what you're doing in, in Illinois, you're going to get a couple of years as opposed to 90 days. Um, or nine months, I'm sorry, nine months. Um, and if you know what you're doing or if you find a good attorney that's, that's, you know, understands these things, you could be in your house. Or if you're somebody that works like crazy, like you and I know, um, and, and really you know, takes these issues to heart and learns the process and learns the issues and, and, and is able to present them in an intelligent way and, and make something that's very, very complex, simple. You know, people are, are known to be in their homes for, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years. And so, so it's all a question of, of how involved you want to be. Well, Dr. Bob, I'm going to ask you these two questions together and take your time and as long as you'd like to answer this. Why do some courts make it so difficult for homeowners or their lawyers to get evidence into the record? And why does it seem the judges are biased against homeowners even when presented with such strong supporting facts? Great question. Uh, I think that first off, you need to lay, I need to lay a foundation for that. Because when I look at that, the first thought that comes into my mind is, did the lawyer, did the homeowner, when they found out this information, whatever it was, um, did they take the appropriate steps to be able to present the information and evidence to the court in a form and format that the court has no choice but to accept. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, and, and I think probably the easiest example to throw out there is the robo-signing uh, scandal that hit. And after that happened, I saw, you know, hundreds of homeowners coming into court and saying, hey, Linda Green signed the affidavit in my case. This is fraud. I demand that it be dismissed. Well, the judge is going to look at that and say, okay, what evidence do you have that I need to look at that is credible, that meets the rules of evidence, that's not just hearsay from some, you know, whether it's a law review article or, or a newspaper article or transcript from a 60 Minutes program that constitutes real evidence of facts that I'm compelled to evaluate. And that's where most people, I think, that's why I think find or feel that there may be bias against them putting things into the record. If you get, if you put your evidence together and you document it, and you get it certified and authenticated, and you provide supporting foundational testimony to ensure its accuracy, ensure its credibility, uh, verifiability, et cetera, and 
give that to the judge as a counterpoint to some of these ridiculous affidavits that the banks put out in foreclosure cases. If you present it right, then you're presenting the judge, particularly if you've got a court reporter there during any challenges to it. You're presenting the judge with a situation where they're looking at an appealable issue. If they deny you the ability to be able to put um, either non-hearsay evidence or hearsay evidence that is subject to an exception into the record in your defense um, or against their complaint, then they know they've got they've got problems, and so they're going to look very very critically at that. But you need to take the you need to take the the you need to make it easy for them and make sure that everything is lined up correctly and that they that the evidence that you're trying to introduce meets the standards of the rules of evidence wherever you are. And if that's done. In most cases, the judges are going to accept it. Now, they, they may still have a conditioning bias towards the banks where they give less weight to that compared to something else. But if it's case-specific evidence that you develop and you can support that you've got this and, you know, it's valid and it's truthful and, you know, it's credible and it's certified, you know, that could be the kind of thing that can swing a case. And going back to what you said before, if your first response is a verified response, then the opposing side has to, but you also have to remember that from then on, all of your stuff also has to be verified, right? Exactly. Everything, once a verified pleading is filed, every following pleading, every subsequent pleading has got to be verified. And if it's not, then it's subject to being stricken. That includes expert witness testimony. Absolutely. So well, everything has to be everything has to be uh, even let's say for example uh, you wanted to challenge uh, process of service from the very beginning before you even got into the meat of the case and you say okay here's some process server you know uh, sewer service company that uh, throws things on the doorstep and it blows away in a storm and you never got it they never met you and they swear that. Uh, they did this and this and this, and your driveway was plowed, and your sidewalk was uh, shoveled, and uh, there was lights on, and so they knew somebody was home, but they wouldn't answer the door as they put in these things. You know, <laughs> you might have been at your mom's house, you know, but they'll swear that you were in the house. How do they, they can see through walls? You know, <laughs> well, and 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 you have to be able to defeat those things somehow. So well, how, do yeah, you de- how do you defeat a BS uh, service? Well, and I've seen, I've, I've argued motions to quash service to summons with the most ridiculous fact that you've ever heard in your life. I mean, I had a guy, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, his name was Oli, and uh, he was this just wonderful Norwegian guy, and he got served supposedly, and when I looked at the service. They said they served a five foot four uh, Asian man with black hair. Now, always about six foot three, and looks like something out of a Viking movie. And and I'm like, really? And I I took it in and I put it up in front of the judge and the bank on the other side. The lawyer was just like, I got nothing. 
Seriously. I brought my client in, and I said, Judge, here's my client. Now, look at the return of service. What does it say? But you know what? Most people don't challenge those things. And so, so, you know, the key is to understand that to get maximum benefit out of this, uh, out of defending yourself in these cases, you've got to, one, get over the fact that you feel guilty because you, you, you know, you, for whatever reason, you know, couldn't pay a particular obligation and recognize that in terms of injured parties, between insurance and credit default swaps and, and, you know, servicers making payments and investors coming in and all these other third-party sources of, of, of cash, that in reality, if you trace the cash flow all the way through to its source, you're not even in default. And so why is somebody bringing a claim to take your stuff? You want to come and, you know, if you if you want, like I said, you want to sue me for unjust enrichment. Okay. You know, bring your claim and show me the paper trail. Show me the money. Show me where, show me the wire transfer records. Show me the ledger that shows where this money was advanced, et cetera. And then we can talk about whether or not I've got an obligation to you. So it really got, kind of comes down once again to homeowners don't understand the definition of words and terms in legalese. And when you see the word default, you think, well, I stopped paying, so it must be that. Um, and so you start imposing your own definitions on the words when, in fact, you should maybe even be asking the opposing party, okay, you're saying this is in default. Would you please give me the definition that you're using here today and and give them a chance to tell you what that is? And they go, oh, well, then of course I'm not in default. You know? <laughs> but, you know, yeah, well, yeah, words matter. Words mean something. So just like foreclosure kills, making assumptions or presumptions on definitions of words without, without you know, taking the time to look at, at what they really say, that's where you're, you know, honestly, and, and this, this one, it, it, shocks, it shocks people the most, um, you risk perjuring yourself under oath. I know, but on the other end of it, doing that, due diligence on making sure that you know what you're answering to is going to be very tedious to the court, which is sitting there looking at their wristwatch going, we've got 250 more cases to get through today. And, you know, you know, Dr. Bob, we're just not going to deal with this. You know what the damn word means, and damn it anyway, just let's go. And, and there's going to be that kind of pressure. What do you do there? There's always going to be that kind of pressure because these judges want to push this stuff forward. But honestly, if you're arguing, you know, if you're just going in, you know, on on a routine hearing where nothing substantive is taking place, you don't need a court report. But if you're in there on a motion to quash or a motion to strike or a motion to compel responses to discovery or a motion for summary judgment, motion to strike an affidavit, you're going to have a court reporter in there. And honestly, the judge is going to give you whatever time that you want because they don't want to be interpreted. They know that the appellate court isn't sitting there, and their words are going to be out there for the entire world to see, including their superiors on the appellate court. And so, you know, they will be they will be more um, they will be more conciliatory in terms of that. Now, what it means is that your hearing is going to be pushed to the end of the call. 
but nobody is going to look to deny you due process in a situation like that because it will be apparent on the record. Well, what effect does an affidavit from an expert witness have on a court case, and why is it that kind of an affidavit from an expert witness better than from the homeowner? We talked about that a little bit, but could you open that up a little bit more? Sure. Well, I mean, the homeowner can testify to facts that they have direct knowledge of. So depending upon how educated they are about the specifics of their circumstances, depending upon correspondence that they've had with the bank, uh, conversations that they've had with the bank or servicer or law firm or whoever, um, you know, they're going to provide some level of factual evidence that they can put into an affidavit that may be valuable. With respect to a motion to quash service of summons, they're going to be able to provide sworn testimony that, um, you know, stands in contradiction to the affidavit of the processor. And, and so that has a certain value. But when you start to get into things like securitization and whether or not the note and mortgage were transferred to the depositor, and from the depositor into the trust in the time given before the closing of the trust. And you start to get into these kinds of, of arcane and, and complex details associated with securitization of, of mortgage obligation. At that point, you're going beyond the ken of most homeowners. What they can do is they could, you know, they could recite things that they've read before and things like that. But I mean, that's like saying, okay, I could be, I, I could be a witness to the murder that took place at 35th and Cottage Grove because I read in the Sun Times an article that described what happened. You know, well, there was there was a recent article, but but really though, Bob, there was a recent article printed on the on one of our friends' uh, websites how um, the court actually allowed an affiant on behalf of the bank, to testify with first-hand knowledge based upon the fact that she had read it from the Internet. And it, it went through court above above and over the attorney's objections. Absolutely. And and you have to always be on guard. And this is the key. This is, I mean, again, this is the key in a situation like that where you've got that hearing where you need to have that court report. So understand that the burden... You always think about who's got the burden of proof. All right, so let's take Illinois for an example. Illinois mortgage foreclosure law says that you need to have, in order to have a, establish a prima facie case, a base case that would allow in a default situation a, a valid judgment to go through on a foreclosure case. You've got to have a complaint that meets all of the um, requirements in terms of information and form and format as the Illinois Mortgage Foreclosure Law sets out. And then you've got to attach a copy of what you allege to be the original note and a copy of what you allege to be the original mortgage. And if you follow those steps, then at that point the court considers you to have met your burden of establishing a prima facie case to foreclose. And then the burden shifts over the defendant to say, no, you're wrong here, 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 and here. Now, there's so much information going on there that you really need to keep a list, a checklist of everything that needs to be challenged as you're going, as you're going through these different documents. And the court is going to be 
I think you can say bias, but I think it's more just they've got, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these cases. They see them all day long, every single day. They anticipate things. And so, you know, the fact that they, uh, you know, allow somebody to say one thing and it appears to be complete hearsay and, and somebody else, they, they'll battle them on it. It's going to happen, I think, by um, just by virtue of the numbers. Um, it certainly should never happen with respect to any kind of material issues of fact. So if, if somebody said, well, I read it on the Internet, and um, or, or take it even a step back, where, you know, I, I read it on the computer screen in my office. And so by virtue of my reading it there, I can testify to the fact that those records are a truthful representation of payments that were made or not made on this loan from five years ago. How does that person know whether or not the payments were or weren't made? Whether those entries were entered in, in, you know, in, in a timely fashion? Whether those entries were, you know, factually correct? Um, whether the systems are, are, you know, are, are systems that are industry standard and that were operating at the time that the information was entered at, at, you know, the highest level of, of accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the truth is, because of the volume of cases in these collection actions, in these foreclosure cases, that the judges, I think, in in some cases, very easily have a tendency to, um, if not cut corners, rush to get through something because they just don't see it as something that's material. And, and in some cases, you know what? Some, I've seen judges that are... Um, you know what? They're like little princes, and they sit up there, and they've got their little fiefdoms, and they are dealing in situations where a high percentage of the litigants on the homeowner or consumer side don't have financial resources, and so they look at it, and they say, you know what? I may be cutting a corner here, or I may be rushing this thing through and not providing you know, the best level of due process that's out there, but... We all know that this person isn't going to have the resources to appeal me anyway, and so that's a risk that I'm going to take because I'm going to be judged on how many cases I get through and, and get off my ball. Well, one of the things that drives me absolutely mad is the phrase, upon information and belief. Because if I swear an affidavit and make it you know, under oath that upon information and belief I, that these things are true, I mean, I could literally bring into cart that... Uh, Noah actually recovered two of every animal on the entire planet and put them on a boat and floated them around until they came to rest on Mount Ararat. And uh, that's how the human race and all other species were able to maintain themselves. Now, okay. that's ridiculous. Just because I read it in this damn book. All right? And, and, and it just drives me mad. I mean, what, when are the courts going to really put people's toes to the fire, and throw the concept of information and belief out the window and have it be first-hand knowledge of fact. That really just... Well, what, do you gotta, what do you got to say about that? When you make them, is that I, I think probably the easiest thing, because at the end of the day, and this goes back to your previous question, you know, if you've got, if you've got an expert witness that can testify to the... Uh, 
the chain of title that is being presented. And, and it doesn't have to be an exhaustive investigation, um, you know, through, you know, title and securitization issues even. If you've just got somebody, and, it, and, it, and this is going to be a case-by-case situation, um, but it may be enough merely to have an expert to be able to come in and give an evaluation and an expert's opinion on the uh, documentation that a bank puts forward. I just filed an affidavit in a foreclosure case recently, and we had one of those affiants that you're describing. Here's a woman who, you know, it was SunTrust Bank um, who represented themselves as the original lender, and then it went to Soteris. There was another there was another servicer in there, and then Soteris showed up, and then uh, Fannie Mae came in and substituted as a party plaintiff. So there, we've got we've got somebody claiming to be an original lender who then later on we find out was just a servicer, and then you've got a subservicer, and then you've got Fannie Mae coming in, and so it, it's like you're playing who's on first, and who was the original lender, and who does have the note and mortgage. And who does have a right to be here? Who has standing in this particular area? And and so to have somebody that can go in and shred that affiant testimony because she comes in and says, I work for Soteris, and I'm going to tell you all about the business records of Fannie Mae and SunTrust Bank. How in the world do you know anything about either of those? So basically what you're telling me is you read your computer screen and you printed out these papers that you attached to your affidavit and you have no idea what systems that they used. You have no idea how reliable they were. You have no idea of the business processes that they had in place at SunTrust Bank before the default as to whether or not they accurately and timely put that information into the recording system and that what you're looking at which you're asking the court to to accept as factual evidence that is reliable and credible, supporting a claim of default and supporting that foreclosure is real. So you know you've got the and and this goes back to the uh, this goes back to that that Yale I think the Yale um, article about you know the free house who deserves a free house and as well as as well as the article. Uh, the Hudson article that you referenced before about, you know, challenging these affidavits. I'm looking at that, and it's like, oh, my God, talk about low-hanging fruit. They really put an affidavit like that into the case? Okay, well, let's talk about all these records that you're absolutely incompetent to testify to. But, you know, let's talk about the fact that you're not qualified to testify to anything. And, and at a base level, at least what you should be able to do with a judge who's willing to do the work and and really you know go in and 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 roll up their sleeves and get their fingernails dirty by looking critically at the substandard affidavit is you're going to at least you're going to reform the process to where it should be and you're going to make sure that people actually have a right to come in and sue somebody in foreclosure and so okay. that's the purpose of the first affidavit is is to keep them on Okay, Dr. Bob, we're, we're, we're clocking along here, and uh got a handful of other things that I'd like to cover before we uh, take our break for uh, 
calls for questions and answers. Um, so generally speaking, what are some of the types of expert witnesses that a homeowner might want to hire, and how do you pick them? How do you know who's not just somebody who recognizes that there's a lot of people in distress and is hanging out a shingle versus a quality expert witness that is, whose testimony is going to actually stand up in court? Yeah, and that's a great, I mean, really, that's the critical question. And and the answer is, is probably twofold. Um, you know, at the very, very high end, you've got, uh, well, first of all, kind of what kind of witness do you need? Um, you've got you've got people out there that are doing, you know, title and securitization uh, investigations and, and putting out reports. And and I don't know how much we're seeing it anymore, but that was a real problem that I had, um, you know, probably five years ago, maybe four years ago, where um, you had really good, credible professionals who were doing these investigations, and then you had the a cottage industry develop where you had, you know, Joe Schmo operating out of his garage um, with an Internet connection and going out to the FCC's website and putting together a, a uh, you know, just a shoddy um, report with, you know, some legitimate facts, but you know, really its its biggest value was the fact that it had a really neat cover page on it that made it look really professional. And then handing that to a consumer for, you know, $3,000, $5,000, $7,000 and telling them, okay, all you have to do now is go and take that into court and give it to the judge and they'll dismiss the foreclosure. And I actually saw that. And, and I called, I called, you know, reported a number of different um, purveyors of those, of those reports um, in hopes of getting them shut down. And you've got other people that are out there that are legitimate that are doing that. And, and you know, they're, they're fairly easy to find, and the biggest issue is going to be expense. And then at the highest level, you've got, you've got people like Marie McDonald out of the East Coast, you know, who's going to charge, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars um, to work a case. She works very few cases, and, and you get law school professors and, and business school professors that are, that are, very knowledgeable about the securitization process, and they take on very few cases, and they charge a lot, and they do, you know, they do an exhaustive examination of of the paper trail and the chain of title and the securitization process as it applies to that specific loan. And that's the key, is that you've got somebody that's going in and looking at the, the facts regarding the specific loan, not just, hey, I've looked at a ton of cases, and I've seen a bunch of fraud, and therefore fraud is happening here. No, here's the deal. I've gone in, I've looked at, you know, the, there's, there's, you know, they've given me, they've tendered three different copies of a note, three different versions of what they're claiming is the original note, and I've got two different kinds of endorsements, and I've got a robo-signer on, on an affidavit, and, and going into the specifics in that particular case. Because that's the only thing that the judge is is interested in. What's going on in that particular case? I understand that there are people getting shot all over the world, all right? And I understand that the south and west sides of Chicago are some of the most dangerous neighborhoods to, to live in in the entire world. But I'm interested in the guy who got shot in, you know, Evanston at 10.58 p.m. on Friday night. And, and so, you know, 
I believe, and, and that's why I started doing what I'm doing in terms of doing these affidavits, I believe that given the shoddy, I think there's a window right here right now, given the shoddy level of um, paperwork in particularly the foreclosure context, um, I believe that there's an opportunity to provide a good, solid expert's affidavit that goes in and tears apart the bank's paper paperwork in a foreclosure. Now, will it result in the dismissal of the case? If, in fact, it's a really bad case and they go back and look at their records and they realize that, you know, this thing is sold ten times and they really, if, if they're pressed by the judge, that they don't have anything, maybe it will, but it still leaves you with a cloud of type. Um, but might it lead to something like, you know, them coming forward with a real loan modification offer and discussing how to settle this thing and get rid of all the arrears and, and other things, those are legitimate possibilities and things that I've done a lot. Um, so so you just have to kind of – each case is going to – is going to present a different set of facts and circumstances, a different set of players, and each one of those variables is going to determine how deep you need to go. And my thinking is that you may you may need one affidavit, um, and depending upon how much pressure needs to be applied, you may need a couple of affidavits. And and in the first instance, I believe that the most critical time to have an affidavit is attached to your verified answer that rips apart and and tears down all of the presumptions that operate in. Um, in, in, in particular, Illinois mortgage foreclosure law. I mean, you've got your explicit presumptions that are attached to, you know, the complaint on its face. When you look at those different questions that are answered there, and those different informational pieces that are there, and then you've got the implicit presumptions that are there regarding things like default and standing, and you know, who the parties are, and you know, what their position is, etc. And um, and having somebody that can go in and really pick those things apart and do it for a reasonable price, I think there's there's a window of opportunity, like I said, where um, a lot of homeowners can get can get some value, where they can get an advantage in the negotiations. And you can do you know, places like Cook County here where you can get pushed into uh, a mediation program and off of the foreclosure trial call so that you have a chance to take a breath and talk seriously about things like reasonable loan modification. Um, one more thing before we uh, break. What is your opinion about homeowners using a Teeler rescission that eventually goes unanswered and becomes effective as a matter of law to change the nature of their case from a secured foreclosure to an unsecured debt collection attempt? I think that, especially that Jessenowski case out of the U.S. Supreme Court, changed the entire. It, it changed the entire battlefield, and and even judges to this day, um, there are judges around the country that haven't quite grasped the magnitude of that that decision. It it puts an incredibly powerful tool in the hands of homeowners who are dealing with refinancing. Okay, because Jeff Nasky only relates to refinance. And if you're talking about original loan modification or original loan 
um, situation, then you may have a common law rescission claim, but it's not necessarily going to be that TILA rescission claim that is set forth in Jeffnowski. And I think right. part of what it does, you know, I think what it does, Goose, is it, it gives them the ability to be able to go on the offensive and and take things to federal court where you're going to get a judiciary that isn't as overburdened by, you know, 10,000 foreclosure cases mm-hmm. being thrown on the docket every year. And they also are very, very comfortable with federal law and procedure and Truth and Lending Act and, and by now, you know, definitely comfortable with with Keeler Rescission under the Jessenowski. All right. Terrific, Bob. Thanks a lot. Are you ready to take some questions from the listeners? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Okay, great. Let's take a short two-minute break and allow everybody to gather up their thoughts and get refreshed. And we'll be right back with the question and answer portion of the show here on the Gallant Goose and Friends with our guest, former prosecutor, retired attorney, and foreclosure defense strategist, Dr. Bob. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Vic Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, We'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Welcome back, everybody. This is Gallant Goose and Friends. If you're just tuning in, we're here with our guest, uh, former prosecutor, retired attorney, and foreclosure defense strategist, Dr. Bob Locke. As a reminder to our callers to ask questions, please press star 8 on your phone to raise your hand, 
and you will be placed into the queue. When you are unmuted, please say your name, where you're calling from, and your question. If you've got a noisy background, you can always mute yourself after asking your question by pressing star six on your phone. Okay. Are you ready to go, Bob? I am. Well, uh, someone, Roddy K., has had his hand up since 15 minutes into the beginning of the call. Hello, Roddy K. Hey, guys, i got a question about the applicability of the uh, the court reporter and when it applies. I was listening to a guy recently, and he was in a setting what we call a corporate court, where the uh, court reporter has a duty and obligation to the court. I believe it was uh, uh, Greg's cousin who was talking about it. And she would put down dot, dot, dot when he would say a particular word. So who's, whose court reporter is it? Who do who they have a, a loyalty to? And are they always invited into the uh, the court? Well, no, that's a really, really good question, Roddy. I and And I had several years where I had difficulty finding um, a really good court reporter and really good. You can find a competent court reporter. They're all over the place. They can, they can, you know, they, they take a recording of what you, what is said and they go and, and transcribe that and can have it back to you, you know, within 24 hours, depending on what you're talking about. Um, now, you know, in, in the transition from where every court had a court reporter at one point in time, which was really the world that I grew up in when I was clerking for my father and working for different law firms and things like that, every courtroom had a court reporter and they transcribed every single hearing, every matter that came before the court during the course of the day. And based upon, you know, what they claimed were budgetary constraints, those went away. Now, in some places, the courts record them themselves and they have their own recording system and obviously we've heard plenty of war stories about and I know I, I represented a, a particular client um, who sued the city of Chicago in the Shackman case that um, uh, you know there were allegations and, and very sincere and severe allegations that the uh, tapes were either unlawfully withheld or doctored um, by the courts and so we see those things. And so, uh, you know, you're paying a court reporter. Um, court reporter has taken an oath. And so there are certain minimal things that that court reporter has got to do. The court reporter is not yours. You're paying for the service. And to provide you a transcript of the proceedings, and those proceedings have to meet the requirements of the court reporter's um, legal obligations, which is to provide a clear and, and accurate transcription of uh, the proceedings in a particular case. Now, now um, you know, the, you need to go into that relationship with an understanding of um, who you are and where you stand with respect to that what is now your employee, all right? Now, that employee goes into court all the time, and that employee is going to have, a, a you know, some, some conditioning themselves. So for me, my one of my greatest days ever was finding a court reporter who is just this wonderful, wonderful older woman who had been doing it since she was in her, in her teens, and she really, really... Um, 
had a had heartfelt support for what I was doing for my clients and really wanted to help my clients. And if I told her my clients were, you know, dying financially and they, you know, give me the minimum that she could charge for a hearing, we could negotiate it and, and she would do it. And she would give me an, a verbatim transcript and she'd give me a copy of the tape so that I could, I could compare it, um, the audio to, to the transcript and then understand that when that transcript comes out, you have the ability, and so does the other party, um, to go in and say, hey, you know what, that's not what I said at this particular point. This is what should be on the record, and and, and push to have the transcript um, uh, adjusted to reflect, to reflect the actual words. May I interject? Sure. This, uh, there seems to be variations between uh, traffic court, I call them corporate courts, and sometimes you can have a trial in a... Uh, a federal court, you know, court of the people, if you will. But in this setting, uh, it's a little inside joke we have. I won't go into it, but Greg's distant cousin was uh, reading the transcript. And like I said, the uh, court reporter put dot, dot, dot. And he asked about the MP3 because it was recorded. And the judge said, absolutely not. So in the in the traffic situation, it totally blew the opportunity for appeals because, I mean, that's what a transcript is for, really. I mean, you can get a and to appeal it. But what can sure. you do if what can you do if the court reporter and the judge I mean it's, it's basically their court. It's not it's not for the people. Yeah. You know, what what do you do? How, how do you, do you what? bring bring witnesses? Do you have affidavits? What do you, what can you do in that situation? That's the easiest way. I, I mean, if if you can't if you can't control the court reporter and, and this is you know, I wanna say I wanna say as a foundational as a foundational matter that goes to what you're saying, um in a lot of instances, and 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 then you know, depending upon how devious the, the issues are, you know, then obviously you've got some, you know, you've got some bias and and subterfuge going on there. But just as 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 a foundational basis for understanding the situation, when you go into a courtroom with a court reporter, it is your obligation to speak clearly and concisely. And I used to get hammered in uh, in telecommunications cases because, as you've listened to tonight, you know, I get passionate about things. I start talking about complex things that, that excite me, and particularly in the telecommunications and, and public utility environment, you get everything is an acronym. And if you don't have a – I would just rejoice when I'd see certain court reporters come in because they had worked with me on, on numerous occasions. And so – you know, they could look at me and go slow down, you know, and as opposed to a court reporter that every 10 words is saying, okay, could you repeat that and could you slow down and then, you know, completely screws up the transcript. It completely screws up the flow of your, of your presentation. So, you know, if you're getting a court reporter, the obligation is on you to make sure that that tape is absolutely clear. Now, another question is, can you have a secondary tape recording made? Now, you know, the big problem nowadays in, in, in these courthouses around the country, you want to call them corporate courts, I mean, they're corporate rules, right? Because it certainly doesn't seem like, given the technology that, um, that we're adapting to provide multiple levels of, of, you know, of accuracy and credibility to 
the records in these cases. Uh, my feeling is that you should be able to have a second recording that is there that can be matched up in the case that there are any discrepancies. And, you know, you're not going to get that, obviously, where the courts in, in some of these places, they're the only ones that can have a recorder there. And they're not going to give you access to the recording or a copy of the recording because they – and I, I, I mean, I know of a federal judge that said if I were to give you a copy of the tapes, then everybody would ask for copies of the tapes and we'd be getting appealed all over the place. So uh, I hope that answers your question. So, so – to, to finalize, and I'll meet out, is the situation where you keep the notice or the paperwork simple and place it in the record and you stand up on it just in case the uh, court reporter uh, bamboozles you purposely? Oh, oh, if you've got, if you have, especially when you've got things like dot, dot, dot. I mean, if you have somebody, you know, that was there taking contemporaneous notes, um, and obviously the more credible that person is, the better, you've got... You know, you've got a first-hand witness's account of of the proceedings. Now you're going to have you're going to have hearsay issues because when you start talking about he said, she said, well, it, the witness isn't the one that saw it or heard it, um, and so you know you're going to have to deal with those kinds of objections. Uh, the first thing I would do is look at your local court rules at whatever level that you're talking about and see whether. Um, it's possible for you as a litigant or whoever is a litigant um, to make a recording for your own notes for purposes of, of making the hearing, you know, run more smoothly at, at, at all sub subsequent hearings. Does that help out, Roddy? I'm guessing it does. He muted himself. All right, uh, Bob, we're going to go to East North Carolina. Hello, East North Carolina. What question do you have for Bob, and what's your name? Hey, guys. Hi. Sorry I missed the first half of the show. I, I'm uh, kind of sneaking in here after the advertisement. Anyhow, uh, Dr. Bob, quick question since you're a former prosecutor. You have um, an endorser who admits that she did not endorse the notes, okay? Now, uh, she won't provide an affidavit or any kind of uh, verification or declaration that she didn't sign it, so basically she doesn't want to cover her behind. But then she turns around and hires a criminal defense attorney. Um, I, what's your take on that? Well, I mean... Is she aiding and abetting? Well, the biggest question is, you know, when did she, in, in what context did she um, admit that she didn't endorse the note? Um, a telephonic interview. She was tracked down and returned to call back, uh, had a, you know tete-a-tete -tete with her, and she said, absolutely no, I did not endorse it. I knew, I knew nothing about it. I had no idea. And do you have about. a recording of that? I didn't because I, I, I didn't want to be rude, um, and I yeah. didn't know at that time I could have a one-party recording, but I didn't do it. It was just, I didn't want to blow her off. I don't want to scare her off. I, I mean, one of the things that you could do, really, at this point, and, and this is a calculated risk from a financial perspective, um, you know what, if she's going to lie, she's going to lie, and there's nothing that you can do about that. Um, what you want to do is, is you know, turn the screws as much as possible. And if she gets a criminal attorney, you know, don't be surprised if she says, you know, I refuse to testify, you know, on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. All right. Um, I, I would subpoena her for a deposition. I've already named her as a lead defendant. Well, I mean, even just as a witness, but I mean, get, you know, get a court reporter, you know, get a conference room or, or you know, a lawyer's office or whatever and 
um, and send, you know, issue a subpoena, follow the procedure, um, and 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 get her to a deposition with somebody who can ask um, the right questions, mm-hmm. and she's she's going to be represented. And if what you get is, you know, she doesn't want to incriminate herself, well, you know, sometimes that that by itself, you know, speaks speaks some powerful. Um, so well, well, her name and signature is on a document, and she allegedly did it as executive vice president. I mean, this isn't a MERS thing. This is a corporate director. Right, but you know what? The thing is, the way that we're dealing with these documents lately is, and, and, and fortunately the courts are starting to come around, mm-hmm. in a situation like that, if, if, I were, if I were dealing with that, the first thing I'd do is, um, is, is subpoena her for a deposition. The second thing that I would do is get a, um, a forensic document examiner and force them to produce the original, that what they purport to be the original of that document and have them look at it. And, and I mean, there are so many, there are so many discrepancies and problems. Well, that I'm are, a criminal. Um, I'm criminal forensics myself. So, you oh, know, yeah, luckily so, yeah. I have that background. I know how to do that. Yeah. But that's, well, I mean, that's why I detected I, it. Yeah, I would do, I would do those two things. I mean, I, I, you know, ideally I would, I would, you know, I would have the document, I would have the document analyzed. And, and then that's going to tell you whether or not you want to push to, to sworn testimony and put their feet to the fire. Okay. Well, you, it's your testimony now that you signed it, you know, and, and if she's going to deny, you know, that she said that in that conversation with you on the phone, which is absolutely possible. Um, you know, then you've got the document. Is this the document that you signed? Right. Exactly. Exactly. My question yeah. was, is she, if she decides that she's going to scroll out of it, is she potentially aiding and abetting? Aiding and abetting. Well, it, it's already been indicated that they that they weren't a real creditor. They weren't the real party in interest. Mm-hmm. And the entity that she allegedly is endorsing on behalf of doesn't even exist. She worked for Fannie Mae, so you know it's. Well, it's she's kinda, committing fraud. Excuse me. She's committing fraud. Oh, absolutely! But by her not exonerating herself. Is she not maybe aiding and abetting in a sort of a collusive enterprise uh, conduct by not, uh, you know, she, the, the attorney she's hired, which is a criminal defense attorney, happens to be a former associate of the law firm representing the main lender. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, I, I know the game. I mean, I know the whole game, but I'm just was curious if she's, you know, quasi-aiding and abetting by not wanting to exonerate herself. Well, I mean, honestly, there may be conspiracy charges there. I mean, when you've got all these all these different you know entities and people, um, uh, you know, obviously um, colluding together, right? On 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 constructing a false record, then you know they didn't do it. They didn't do it in little silos. Right, without exactly. communications with each other. They're right. So you got to have a Rico, uh, quasi Rico situation. There. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Eighteen uh, USC. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I. I mean, honestly, you know, people do the and 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 we're getting to the point finally where courts are starting to look at these issues, and I, I think that we're not far from where you're going to have courts really entertaining, you know, serious criminal or quasi criminal charges against these people and, and the RICO type things. And I think it's um, up to us to pull out these individuals so that they can go back to the old 
adage of, well, the DOJ has to now start fingering individuals at the corporations. Well, this is the best way to do it then. Well, Here, you know what? I, I always, I always feel, and 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 I, I caught a lot of grief when I was practicing practicing as an attorney um, for doing this. But when I, I would always give them an out. I would give them an opportunity, you know, to take something back. But where I had an attorney that was, you know, pursuing a collection action of some kind. And it resulted in a valid FDCPA claim or a FCRA claim or you know the yeah. deceptive practices. I, I yeah I I I'd sue I'd sue I'd sue the collector, I'd sue the law firm, and I'd sue the individual attorney. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've they've all been the complaint was put together, and they're all named as defendants, yeah, including the point, executives with the entities because they were yeah. actually the vice presidents and they're responsible for their uh, entities. Yeah, because if you get the individuals now, then they've got to go in and they've got to, they've got to, you know, the insurance company's got to come in. They've got to notify the insurance company, right? And so you've got all there. I mean, I've sat at negotiation tables at, at, at pre-trials, and you know, they basically did my job for me. They were sitting there arguing amongst each other as to who was going to be cutting the bigger check. And, well, and, and here's the other good part: if all the law firms and the attorneys are all named, they can't defend each other. They have mm-hmm. to get outside counsel. They have to get outside counsel, and, and, and there's going to be insurer issues across the board. Oh, that's going to be a mess. It's E&O is going to be like, you know, uh, implosion. Yeah, have fun with it. Thank you. I'll check out your site. I'm, I apologize. missed the first half. I'll be looking forward to listening to it, uh, recording later. Well, thank you. Thank you, Greg. All righty. Thanks. Uh, reminder again, uh, press star 8 on your phone if you would like to raise your hand. We've got a bunch of you on the call, and uh, uh, don't be timid. And if you're only on the chat board, please type your question, and uh, we can read that into the into the, uh, to the record here. Um, Eastern Maryland, uh, you are next on the call. Hello, Eastern Maryland. Your name and uh, what's your call for Dr. Bob? Hey, Dr. Bob, it's uh, James from Maryland. Um, in the beginning, you had talked about licensing. And uh, this particular company, um, I checked with uh, Dealer Licensing and Regulation here in Maryland, and the company applied for a license in 2002, but they withdrew their application in 2003. Uh, but it's the same company in 2005 that originated our mortgage, um, how, how would you take that, or what should I do at this point? Well, uh, you know, the licensing thing, uh, it's a good question, a real good question, James, because it's an issue of how much mileage can you get out of it. And, and, and in terms of a defense situation, you look at it and say, okay, well, what, you know, were they even lawfully allowed to, to originate a, a mortgage at that point? a mortgage loan at that point in time. Um, and the question is, if not, then, you know, what is the remedy? Does that mean that I get a free house? Does that mean that everybody that they originated mortgage loans for gets a free house? And I guess the answer would be, uh, as far as most foreclosure courts are concerned, um, no. You know, they'll get whacked with fines, and maybe they'll, if they were finally licensed at some point in time, they'll get their license suspended or revoked. Um, but, you know, as far as those loans themselves, and maybe somebody's going to do jail time, but as far as those loans themselves, 
I, I would I would anticipate what they're going to do is is sell those things if they haven't already, and then you're going to have somebody else coming in and saying, hey, money was lent, and a house was purchased, and the homeowner defaulted, and so therefore, you know, you've got some kind of a quasi-contract or unjust enrichment claim that's going to lie in equity, um, and and so you know, because courts, you know, and and Greg and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, courts are very, very reluctant for a number of different reasons to be perceived as giving a free house to a homeowner. They don't mind giving a free house to a bank, but they do have a problem giving a free house to a homeowner because they believe that the they believe that the the penalties are so severe for a bank lying in a foreclosure or lawsuit situation that they just wouldn't do it, and so they give them a tremendous amount of latitude and credibility that they're honestly not entitled to if you look at the facts of these individual cases. Um, and the other side of it is these judges are conditioned. I, they've got a mortgage. They're paying it every month, and, um, you, know, the, you know, they can't get out of it, so they're not going to let you get out of it. Now, unconsciously they're, or consciously, they're also – operating under an environment where their pension fund is probably invested up to the hilt in these in these um in these securitized you know mortgage investment vehicles and you know so <laughs> what does that do in terms of in terms of they're not being biased yeah it's 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 not a securitized loan per se i know that Fannie Mae's the owner and as far as the dealer licensing was concerned uh, when they withdrew their application back in 2003, they, they never got another, they never applied again because I, I couldn't find anything and they, they couldn't find anything. Um. Well, just because, just because Fannie Mae's involved, I mean, Fannie Mae's got, Fannie Mae is one of the biggest dealers in, 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 you know, different exotic, um, uh, you know, securitized investment vehicles. So, um, don't presume too quickly that there isn't some kind of a securitization element to to your loan. Right. Okay. All right. Does that help? Yes. Good luck, James. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot, James. Um, okay, everybody. Uh, everybody's talking on the chat board about uh, my possible uh, family relations. That's <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, um, um Dr. Bob, can you address some of the magical mortgage assignments under powers of attorneys to servicers like Aquin that people find recorded in their county recording files that are supposedly issued by entities which either never existed, are closed, or were dissolved under bankruptcy? And can a power of attorney endure after the principal no longer exists? Uh, good question. Um, the the quick and easy answer is upon the death, um, whether it be you know a corporate person or, or a natural person, upon the death of the uh, uh, the grantor of the power of attorney, that power of attorney is 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 it ceases with the caveat that um, uh, the person holding the power of attorney can act under that authority until the point in time where they have knowledge of the death. So their acts are not automatically invalid. 
if they didn't have knowledge of the death. Right. And in the case of, oh, let's say some little bank in California, not even a bank, a, 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 an originator called New Sensory Mortgage. And mm -hmm. sure. when they went belly up and went into receivership and uh, were then assumed into a whole new entity, um, that new receiver acts solely on behalf of what was ever left over, right? Not whoever had a power of attorney for the previous entity. Um, oh, so how do they do well, that? You know what, what? I tell you what. The you know that whole that whole Aquin cesspool um, really it should be the subject of multiple Hollywood movies because of the level of fraud that was involved with that. You know, look at exactly the same people who had you'd been dealing in subprime and abusive mortgages, you know, for years, and instead of going to jail, they, you know, just put up a new shingle, and um, and you know, the paperwork was shoddy. I mean, everything about the whole thing was just really looked at as a joke. And the first time that I came across some of that stuff, and I, I actually, I actually sued them in federal court here. Um, on a number of mortgages and raised exactly the same kind of issues that you are. I mean, I started looking at some of these assignments and they were so sloppy. And, you know, the dates didn't line up. Um, you know, you had, you had, uh, um, notaries where there were questions as to whether or not they, they were still, they still, whether they, somebody else was using their stamp. You know, you had robo-signers, I mean, level upon level upon level, layer upon layer of, of you know, apparent um, problems in their documentation. And yet judges just rubber-stamped them. And I think, honestly, that um, I think that the reason that that happened uh, as often as it did is because Generally, what you were dealing with was homeowners going in, and even if the homeowners were represented by an attorney, um, the homeowners didn't have anything other than their own observations. So the attorney can get up and 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 make arguments, um, but the attorney can't present evidence, and the homeowner generally isn't sophisticated enough to go in and look at those issues and provide a fact-based um, affidavit, you know, that, that the court's going to look at in contradiction to uh, the evidence presented by the, uh, by the bank and, and say, oh, I'm going to take that over them. I'm glad you and, brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up about attorneys um, having to walk the fine line between Arguing on behalf of their plaintiff, on their client, versus trying to put witness testimony into the case, and talk about how a homeowner, if he's pro se, or a green attorney who's just sharpening his tool, can listen more carefully to identify between one and the other. Well, you know what the you know the key to the the key to foreclosure, um, particularly and, and collection actions generally, is understanding that 
you know, opening up your eyes, taking off the rose-colored glasses, and arguing every presumption. And it all starts, and in my mind, it all ends with the documentation. Their claims are based upon documents that they got in electronic form. They, there weren't big trucks full of documents that were pulling up to their offices. They got a data dump. Maybe they got an external drive, um, or they were granted access to a server that had scanned documents of, of different varieties. And maybe those documents were legitimate, and maybe some of those documents were pieced together by a good computer whiz who could take them and, you know, put, you know, a signature line from one document and take that signature and move it over to another document and, and you know, piece together something that they then claimed was an original, a copy of an original that was, you know, legitimate and verifiable. And, you know, all those things are out there. So, so your job is to go in and start there. All right. Understanding that this isn't, we're not dealing with somebody who's got a stack full of papers that came from, you know, that they can show you signed them on this date at the closing table and they were with Ed, the document custodian, you know, for seven years and then they were transferred over to Terry and, you know, at this address and they were there until they were signed out by the law firm for this particular case. And um and that happened on this date at this time and here's you know, here's Terry's signature. You know, as and, a comparison as a comparison for people to think about, when you send registered mail as opposed to certified mail, mm-hmm. there is the element of a document custodian from the time it leaves your original post office to the time it arrives at the receiver. And it stays in a locked mail bag for the entire trip. And every time that bag moves from one place to another, a man or woman signs for it so that there is absolute custodial proof of the transfer of that registered mail. That's the kind of proof that I think that we should be pushing for in these cases. Don't you agree? Well, that's what, you know, county recorder's offices and then the county recorder, I mean, they're the they're the... the pumping heart of, of all of this. That's what they've demanded forever, and that's what that's what courts have traditionally um, expected. And I think that what we're seeing now is a, a slow turning of the tide in some more advanced states and in some of the less corrupt states across the country where judges are starting to recognize that what they were presuming about the way that the mortgage industry functioned is very different than what's actually happening and that there's an incredible amount of um, uh, problems with the documentation that they're granting evidentiary status to and taking people's homes away when, in fact, if they apply the, the, the age-old standards regarding chain of title and how you document that and who, you know, who's the custodian, the document custodian, at every stage of that chain, you're right. It would it would upend the entire securitized mortgage market because you've got. I mean, the most glaring example, obviously, is is Countrywide, who you know you got you've got uh, um, uh, what was that woman uh, D'Antonio talking about how well yeah I mean we weren't built to to operate that way you know the documentation would come in and we would scan the notes and the mortgages into an electronic database and then we'd shred them. Okay, well, they destroyed the note. 
they destroyed the note, they destroyed the obligation. Period. End of discussion. That's why, you know, you had that original note, you know, people, you know, walking in pro se and going, show me the original note. Well, okay, that, you know, that worked for a particular period of time. And then they just got really good at using electronics to recreate the note. And, you know, they used paper that looked like it was, you know, it was aged. But, there is they, not. but it is well, not recreating well, the note. It is no, still a facsimile. You know, I, I, I use this example probably six times on this call, and that is I've got a $100 bill. I'm going to make a photocopy front and back with a color copier, <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to shred that freaking $100 bill. All right? And now I'm going to go to the uh, office of uh, the Treasury and say, I want a replacement for it. And there you go. They're going to say, go to hell. Well, and they're going to say, what are you doing making photocopies of our money? Well, of course, I'll write across <laughs> it, you know, you know, copy non-negotiable, you know, you know, evidence for lost or destroyed note. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I want, I want a new $100 bill. I mean, so how many times can I do that? I could just take that same $100 bill and do that like 10,000 times. All right. Right. They don't understand the concept that a note is a fungible instrument and it is unique and priceless. And that's it. They just yeah, don't yeah. get it. No, you're absolutely right. Well, they you know, it's assumptions and you know what happens when you assume, right? And and the problem is that, you know, the 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 judicial um the the judicial machinery is very slow. It's a you know, very slow to change and adapt. And you know, just like anything else, you're going to see certain states, as we already have, that are entering judgments for homeowners and saying, look, at, you know what, you had the chance, you came in here and you made all these claims that you had this correct documentation, and you had a witness that was able to come up and that was credible and, and, um, and you know, qualified to offer this this evidence. And, you know, I don't care whether you lied or you just screwed up. In any case, you don't have a claim, and I'm going to dismiss this. You know, I'm going to deny your motion for summary judgment and and with prejudice. And, you know, we're seeing it happen, and it's awesome that it is. It's not happening often enough, and unfortunately, Illinois will probably be the last state in the nation that will get to that point. Um, but it's happening. Okay, Dr. Bob. That means we've got about five minutes or so. Hello, sir. Ma'am, wherever you are. <laughs> Budman, hello, you're on the call. California is on the call. Budman, are you there? You raised your hand. Hello. I'm sorry, I had my mute on. I was just talking away. Oh, <laughs> I don't know that happens. Oh, I hope, I you, had, that hope you had a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, apologize for that. Um, yes, uh, I have a, uh, a mortgage with a local bank. It's not it's not been securitized. It, uh, it's not with mirrors or anything like that. Uh, can you be, can you speak to anything that's available to a situation like that? You know what? If I have seen, and it's very rare, but I have seen situations like that where um, you know, in, in in a small bank situation. It actually is what I described earlier, where you sign the note, 
at the closing table and the mortgage and they cart it off in a file and they put it into the vault in a particular, you know, set of filing cabinets and the thing just sits there and it doesn't come out until there's a need for it to come out either when it is discharged or when it's defaulted. And in a case like that, um, you know, there's always something. There's always something that you can raise. I mean, you know, we're living in a world where people are finally understanding things like the issues discussed in the Federal Reserve's, you know, modern money mechanics. They're, they're starting to understand the kind of things that were raised um, in the daily case, you know, where you start talking about, um, you know, where does money come from for a loan? And was there any real consideration? Was there substance that was loaned? Or did they just basically lend you back your own credit? And, and then, you know, take all these payments and, and, and then eventually, you know, when you couldn't pay anymore, then they go to take the asset from you. Um, incredibly high burden to, to, to go to. And, you know, are cases like that one, you know, I mean, we know that they have been. Credit River, you know, uh, was one case, you know, obviously that, uh, that, that did. Um, but very rare. And the one thing that you have to understand is that, you know, the judges that are hearing foreclosure cases, and it's different every place, you're going to know your own local environment, you know, better than I or anybody else. But I can tell you what a what I've said to Greg on numerous occasions, and what was said to me by you know a name partner in one of the largest firms in the country, talking about um, talking about Cook County and talking about foreclosure judges. And he said, he said, you know, what you have to understand is these guys are just glorified precinct captains. If you're looking for you know Joseph Story or learned hand and some kind of incredible jurisprudence um, and discernment on the law and on evidence in these cases, you're not going to find it. You know, these guys' job is to, they're, they're, they're basically there and they're traffic cops and they're, they're helping to regulate the flow of these cases through the system. They give $10,000 to the Democratic committee to get on the ballot and maybe they give a little bit more and they go higher up in the ballot and their job is to go out and ring doorbells and host fundraisers and, and go out and, you know, kiss babies and shake hands to get voters into the polls so that some of those voters who are coming in to vote for them are going to flow over and vote for other Democrats or Republicans. All right. And, and to expect them to tear apart the lending, um, industry and upset the financial industry as it's currently structured at that lowest level of courts, I think is completely unrealistic. And Look, it and might be... Give me as much information as you can of those two cases that you mentioned where I can look those up and get some familiarity with them, the Daily and the Credit River. Well, it's, I think it's... And just Google the Credit River decision. And, and you'll and you'll find you'll find an interesting history and and the problem that I have is that people you know people just go in and they throw that thing out and they start to make those arguments and it's like what we were talking about earlier um, you know there was a time in, in in the past where there was a gentleman who had worked at the Federal Reserve for a lot of years and um, and and he went off and he retired from the Federal Reserve and he was brought in as an expert witness in some uh, foreclosure cases to talk about 
the way that the financial system actually operates. And, um, and you know, his affidavit was copied and circulated all over the country, and people would put that and then that Credit River decision into into the record in cases all over the place and say, okay, you know, throw the foreclosure out. Well, no, you can't because that guy didn't come testify for you, and the facts of that Credit River case, you've got to show that they apply to you. And so you're not going to be able to do that until you are able to get access to the information and the facts in their systems to verify that, in fact, the same circumstances apply. And and then you're going to need somebody to come in and file an affidavit testifying to those issues. Okay. Well, what was the daily case? Well, that's the Credit River decision. Oh, that same one. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That would be fun to read anyway. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great stuff, great history. And the, the poor Justice of the Peace died a very, very mysterious death not long after issuing the opinion. So it's it's an interesting piece of American history up in Minnesota. A fishing accident. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Greg, um, I, uh, you know, I've heard John Angel's call a lot, and I knew you were out there, but I didn't realize you had this call going. I, I heard you on an old show, and so I had to come over sooner. Well, we're certainly glad that you found your way over here. And uh, yeah. please pass the word around to your friends and uh, keep the uh, keep the faith and keep the work up. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Good luck. All righty. Um, we are at the end of our time, believe it or not. It's, it flies so quickly when you're doing it. You know, ever notice, <laughs> ever, no, ever notice that uh, when you look at some pre-recorded phone call that says it lasts for two hours, you look at it with this daunting viewpoint going, oh, God, I don't know if I want to commit myself to listening to something for two hours. But when you're in the call and you're on the show, it flies. Time and flies when so, you're having fun. <laughs> and, but that's also why we don't allow this thing to go on to three- and four-hour marathons like some of our dear friends do. Yeah. <laughs> they are marathons. But um, regardless, uh, since that's all the time we have tonight, folks, uh, we want to say thank you. You've all been great. And please don't forget to check out the comments and the resource links that were provided on the chat board. You can download those by going to chatgrabber.com and then type in the show number, 139335, and this would be episode 27. Uh, we posted up uh, links and information on some of Bob's previous work and uh, ways to contact him if you would like. So I understand that on uh, TalkChu, if you log in after something was already posted, you don't know that it was already there. It doesn't, it doesn't give you a past history of that. But if you go to ChatGrabber, you'll be able to go back and get the stuff that you didn't see when you came on. Okie doke. Um, before we go, Bob, I uh, want to say thanks for coming out of the show. And I want to just say out loud a uh, way for folks to contact you. Um, sure. Easiest way. We've got, a, we've got a, uh, a website that is in development, but it's not, it's not ready for rollout right now. It will be uh, debtsanctuary.net. So all one word, D-E-B-T-S-A-N-C-T-U-A-R-Y.net. And that'll have a whole slew of, of resources dealing with 
uh, foreclosure defense strategies and, and, you know, supporting documents and things like that. In the meantime, um, uh, anybody can feel free to send me an email at debtlawyer at gmail.com, D-E-B-T-L-A-W-Y-E-R at gmail.com. And thank you so much for having me on the call, Greg. Really enjoyed talking with you. Dr. Bob, do you mind uh, referencing your LinkedIn page? Um, yeah, that's you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just under Bob Locke, B-O-B-L-O-C-K. Uh, it's www.linkedin.com slash in slash Bob dash Locke dash A613, I'm sorry, 8A8. So that last figure was A six one three eight A eight. Okay, well, since we've got that up there, uh I think we've taken care of that. Um as always, if anybody would like to, you can contact us here at the show at thegallantgoose at gmail dot com or you can go to the website gallantgoose.com. If anybody has suggestions for future guest speakers, please feel free to send us an email with their information, and we'll try to get them on board. And we hope tonight's program has been helpful for you. Um, as a final program note, uh, next week, April 7th, we'll have Ken Dost back for part two of his three-part series on MERS, patents, trademarks, copyrights, and adhesion contracts. On April 14th, Corey Goldstein and George Finder will be returning with their follow-up on the free credit damage reports that they performed for some of our audience members. And, of course, on April 21st, Dr. Bob Locke will be back with Part 2 of this series on foreclosure evidence and procedure. During the interim, you're all encouraged to visit their respective websites or listen again to their previous shows here on The Gallant Goose and Friends. We hope that you'll all be able to join us. Again, on behalf of our dear guest, Dr. Bob Locke, and our dedicated team here at The Gallant Goose and Friends, we thank you all for being here tonight. Good night, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Good night, Greg. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. This is Big Papa Stanley reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois. In a place they call Chicago I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago Now see I was still on the city street With a song to ride around here Tell my story They can raise on the south side Called the ballot. For one, we bought penny candy, chased rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city street, on the strong surround. Seven, they worked two jobs. Mama held it together. Walked a mile to school, had to fight every day. Sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes it took away. 